How are you? Hope you're fine. This is the Shaggy Show. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three. Good luck, studio. Oh, it's the Shy Life Podcast. Oh, there's going to be some drama ahead. All I wanted was a pie. And then I hatched out with an egg. Okay, bring the mic over. He's ready to record. I see your mental condition is improving. Is it metaphorical? Is it is it deep? Is it deep? Oh boy, he's got all that shy is right. <laughs> Blimey, governor. It's the Shy Life Podcast. Hello, Hello and welcome to yet another episode of the Shy Life Podcast with me, Paul the Shy Yeti. How are you doing? I'm alright. So what's this episode going to be about? Well, we're celebrating one of my poetry collections. A poetry collection called Go Forth and Divide, which um, was first released in 2003, so yes, it's its 20th anniversary, so I'm going to read you some of my favourite pieces, tell you a bit about the book, and uh, yeah, hopefully you'll enjoy it, but let's run that theme music. Darling, it's the Shy Life Podcast. <laughs> yes, well, it's a positive theme, Paul. A highlight, the Shy Life. You won't find a cast of characters like this everywhere. Uh, I'll go anywhere for a potato. Delicious. Hello, Captain. How are you? You quite like a big bang, don't you, Paul? <laughs> Go shy, Yeti. Oh, he hasn't found out my secret. I think he has. I love the Yeti test. It's my favourite thing. If you thought that was bad, just listen to this. Yeah, I am strangely drawn to Yeti Uncle John's ankles as well. <laughs> I could eat my body weight in crisps <laughs> every day. Has anyone seen my hot sausage? It's all green, meaty. Yum, yum, yum. It's the Shy Life Podcast. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Look, mommy, I'm famous. <laughs> marvellous. Marvellous, Paul. Hi there. So, yes, we're going to be talking about Go Forth and Divide. It's actually one of two books this year that celebrate their 20th anniversary. The other, the Autumnal EP, it's, it's a bit of a shorter collection, but um, I think I'll probably keep that for a separate episode because um, we may talk to a special guest during that episode. But uh, as for Go Forth and Divide, which was indeed my was my fourth collection, um, not counting the ones that I'd forgotten that I'd done in the 90s, um, I'd forgotten that I'd, I'd had enough poems to put together a collection, um, but they weren't officially released or self-published. In fact... The first eight of my books, uh, of my Naughties collections, were they were also done very much cut and paste and staple and making them available as people wanted them. It was only with book nine that uh, I discovered Lulu and released that book on Lulu and then went back and released the first eight again and I released those in pairs, whereas 
the way we've been talking about them has been like the year they came out or the anniversary of the year they came out. Um, the way they were paired in the noughties to start with was um, like numerical, so book one and two, book three and four. So Go Forth and Divide was originally packaged with Third Time Lucky, so I think it became Third and Fourth Time Lucky. Um, I only did that because um, it was a bit of a rush job to get the original files onto Lulu, and I just felt that um, releasing them as separate books wasn't, you know, some of the, some people already had them, and uh, to catch up with getting them out, I wanted to sort of put them as double volumes. When I got to the tenth anniversary, well, starting back in two thousand and one with with junk food and roller, and then roller coaster in two thousand and two, and third time lucky in two thousand and two. Yeah, but the point we're up to now, each book was extended. There were pictures added, which there were no pictures in the original version. Um, things have moved along, and uh, yeah. So you know, these books aren't as long as the ones the new ones that I was writing around this time. We talked about Are You There, Yeti, not so long ago. And that book was, like, pushing 400 pages. The The book version of Go Forth and Divide is 144. And uh, the autumnal EP is, is shorter. That's about 96. But um, the autumnal EP is a shorter collection anyway, hence the, the EP title. That's uh, me using my sort of music um metaphors in that when i did the autumnal ep i knew it was a shorter collection so it wasn't a single it wasn't an album <laughs> like go forth and divide had been an album it um it was an ep although there are i don't know 20 30 poems so hardly an ep really but uh, um go forth and divide has a picture of me on the front cover. At least the 2013 version does. When I returned to this book for the 10th anniversary in 2013, I definitely made some improvements. So yes, the uh, the cover of Go Forth and Divide has a picture of me in some 3D glasses. I think a picture probably taken in LA. Um, the, the back cover has a silly picture of me by the sea, which is difficult to describe. It involves a shell. Um, let me read the back cover of Go Forth and Divide. Go Forth and Divide, published in mid-2003, was Paul's fourth self-published collection and his third to include completely contemporary compositions. Long before he became Shayetti, he was just Paul Chandler. What hasn't changed is that he always wrote daft verse. Until now, Go Forth and Divide has only been available alongside its sister volume, Third Time Lucky, be released in 2012 so this is the first time that it has stood alone this is a special 10th anniversary edition containing photos and behind the scenes information about the book this volume includes many poems that paul still performs today as old as you feel daredevil dark horse exit pursued by yeti furry from the deep killing time revolution on the 815 and rosy tinted life but also includes many that he's never publicly performed. So sit back and enjoy. Um, I guess I should say that uh, this is definitely in the uh, era when 
I was writing either poems or very short, pretty short prose pieces. None of the, the long stories, which kind of explains how much longer a book like Are We There Yet He Is. Um, but yes, this still has elements of that first version of the book, the, the hand-printed version, in that the word file that it originated in um, was still used as the template. Uh, the, the the front cover, or the inside cover, I should say, is still the... Uh, it's still got the clip art that I used um, of a castle. Goodness knows, goodness knows why. But the majority of the book has been thoroughly reworked. Um, so, information inside... The first hand-printed version came out in summer 2003. Um, there was a revised version in spring 2005... Um, I'm not quite sure what I did to it at that point. The first Lulu version was in the summer of 2006. This is um, anniversary edition, 10th anniversary edition, came out in May 2013. And now, of course, we're um, we're talking about it now, 20 years on. There are a few other poems in here that uh, I used to I used to perform. Oh no, I don't worry about that. So. Let's look at the titles of the poems in uh, this collection. This this collection even had a, a prologue, which I, I won't read. I think it's like a a fictional um, version of how this book came into being, but I may be wrong. Uh, but uh, the titles of the poems include, Ah, this will be the first poem. Anything for her art, as old as you feel, black and white cows, breakages must be paid for, bricks, tricks and ant hills, bull in a china shop, conversation overheard, daredevil, dark horse, dating season, decorating Morrissey, did you keep the receipt, drunk, earth is round, yeah right, evolving, excuse me but are you the love of my life? Exit pursued by Yeti, farewell to Slough, from the mind of a turnip, furby from the deep, gap in the market, getting on famously, got it all, great man, hard to get, he sang, how long have you two been together, hunt the tattoo, I am not a good enemy to make, I cannot hope to compare, I don't get on well with inanimate objects, if you loved me you wouldn't, I'll never tell, it's not necessary to panic. Just an everyday werewolf. Just one of those things. Killing time. Love and amnesia. Marshmallow hearts too. Meanwhile elsewhere. Mr. Popular Culture. My last love until the next one. Nigel the Lonely Stag. Not the guy you thought I was. 100 second chances. Pigeonhold. Revolution on the 815. The Rockpool. Rosy tinted life. Running down corridors. She takes off her rings. She works her fingers to the bone. Something old, something new. Sometimes I talk to cold callers. Soon on your way strikes back. Stalker, temper temper, ten days. That joke just wasn't funny. There were no discotheques in the stars. They came from outer Hebrides. They're so rich. We have mice. What would the world do without me? Would Audrey Hepburn do it? Would you deny us? You and whose army? Um, 
And then there's also Not A Happy Bunny. Um, I'm not sure why that's in this collection. Whether that was new or whether I just decided to reuse it. I do remember that poem, but I don't quite understand. I don't quite understand why it appears at the end of the book. Um, also, I've noticed another typo. How annoying. It's very annoying. Uh, according to this, I wrote Not Happy Bunny um, a little bit after the rest of the book, and it was short, and I was going to keep it for the next collection, but decided to include it. Um, but I guess I didn't want to muck around with... Just It's just easier to stick it on in the end. Um, as, as I've mentioned before, I used to... Um, I used to make comments or facts and figures about each of the poems I wrote. In this collection, I've got the original 2003 comments plus comments from 2013, updating it to sort of whether these are ones that I have made videos for or have performed at shows. Um, Yeah, it just sort of, I guess, it shows which of the poems... um, had become more regularly performed, um, adds to the history and makes for sort of, um, yeah, updating the story. Um, but there's also an epilogue, which I think continues the story of how this book was written, but it's a fictional account. Um, so, I think I will begin reading... you feel which I think I may have updated for a friend's birthday in 2003 I turned 30 um, so this was called as old as old as you feel 30 but I think I I updated it for a friend's 40th or slightly changed it but uh, here we go as old as you feel you are 30 you are splendid except that 30 is your fate too old for kindergarten but not too old to date Your life is in its prime now. You are cruising at your game. There are heights still left to scale, though, and tigers yet to tame. You are 30. You're fantastic. You're good-looking for your age. Any wrinkles are distinguished. Any crow's feet. All the rage. Every day a celebration. Every day your page is blank. If you choose to make a fortune, hey, so maybe rob a bank. You are 30. You're a legend. Did you get your big red book? Any silly baby photos? I would like to take a look. They'll be building you a statue. They'll be putting up the flags. Only don't be fretting over just how much your belly sags. You are 30, not forever, so enjoy it whilst it's here. Take yourself another tea bag or another vat of beer. Now you're 30. Say you're 20. 31 need not hit the goal. It's not a lie if you keep smiling. Shh, you need never tell a soul. 30 feels very young now, now that I'm nearly 50. <laughs> um... But yes, my 30s were very good. I, I, I agree with some of that. My, my 30s were definitely better than my 20s and much better than my 40s. <laughs> I'm going to jump back one to, to Anything for Her Art, which is a, a short sort of macabre story. 
anything for her art. She watches from the bridge, she paints, painting what she sees upon the tracks, the body sprawled awkwardly in death upon the railway line, where he fell from quite a height after she pushed him, arms windmilling as he dropped, unprepared yet accepting the inevitability below. There's not much time left, the train is due, must capture him before the scene is spoilt. She tried it before, tried to paint with the remains, but blood isn't flexible, it's quick to become sticky, clotting, it dries on the canvas too quickly, discoloured and darkening, from a bright vibrant red to a potent dark brown. But she is always ready to try new approaches, anything for her art. That's a macabre little piece. Black and white cows. Are black and white cows only black and white because they can't afford the licence fee? Are they jealous of the coloured ones, mooing, why is it them and never me? Then again, the coloured ones just look silly. They're ready brown or sepia-toned. They're probably just the rejects, which no one ever wanted cloned. Did you ever see a blue cow, or one in maroon and polka dot? Most likely black and white just works the best, whilst which vivid pink, well, just does not. Have you ever seen a black and white cow getting drunk and acting rude? Only coloured ones do things like that, or talk like dear-hearted Ermintrude. Still talking cows they can intimidate, talking cows can seem perverse. Black and white cows simply stand and chew. Yes, I prefer they don't converse. Black and white looks best at parties. Black and white looks cool on farms. It's not dull like beige or cream is, or so loud it sets off car alarms. No, black and white cows are black and white because they know it looks the best. They're the trendsetters of the bovine world and the envy of all the rest. I think it's safe to say that was just um, a piece of nonsense poetry because I'm still of the era where I remember people talking about black and white TV or actually having a TV that only played in black and white. You know, people had black and white TVs long after colour TV was, you know, popular and available. So I think just thinking about black and white cows, which you get quite a lot of in the UK... You know, are they black and white because they didn't pay their licence fee because you used to better buy a black and white TV licence or a colour TV licence? Possibly a younger person reading that wouldn't know what on earth I was going on about. Um, they also probably wouldn't know the reference to Ermintrude. Ermintrude was a, a cow in a TV show called The Magic Roundabout, although I don't think she was black and white. I think she was pink or red or mixture. Anyway, how quickly these things date... This one's called Breakages Must Be Paid For. Breakages must be paid for. We are drafting out a list for those whose hearts are aching, for those no longer blissed. Breakages must be paid for, always right across the line. For sending flirty letters, there's a small yet certain fine. Making advances in the office is one pound or maybe two. The price will be a fiver for pinching ladies in the queue. It's a tumble by the copier is ten pounds and sixty pence. Not keeping all your promises will be double, no defence. But it's worth that I am planning. It's a love you cannot measure. Reparations for the damages with a life without love's pleasure. Breakages must be paid for, but the heart is not exempt. For those loves left so dishevelled, for those loves left quite unkempt. Breakages must be paid for, every love rat kept in hand, 
dating folk whilst on the rebound will cost you more or less a grand. If you kiss your lover's sister, leave the poor lass in the lurch, where we'll make it quite illegal to leave girls stranded at the church. We'll have watchdogs out to monitor and guards patrolling all the towns, so gents do not attempt to put their hands up ladies' gowns. But there is some hurt you can't make up for, some sorrows can't be recouped. It's the pain of true love shattered, it's the tears of sweethearts duped. Breakages must be paid for, hard catch is only just the start, for some need floral retribution to repair their broken heart. There's quite a lot of poems around this time about you were being treated badly by cruel and heartless boyfriends. Um, I don't <laughs> I don't know that I was talking out of uh, uh, experience or anything. It's just how it happened. This next piece, Conversations Overheard, is, well, it's more of a prose piece. Um, have a listen. Let me set matters straight from the conversations overheard, from the gossip doing the rounds. Here is a list of things I've heard people say about me. These things were mostly said behind closed doors, but over the years they have found their way back to me. I feel I should confront them, tell my side of the story, put right any inconsistencies or complete fabrications. Okay now, so this is what I've heard. I'm bald, I wear a wig, and not a very good one either. I once picked my nose in front of the Duchess of Kent. In another life I was Joan of Arc's less well-known sister. I have a pathological fear of spaghetti, which I often mistake as a plate of worms. I am obsessive about the pettiest of things, like the colour of eyeshadow, the temperature of my foot spa, the flavour of boiled sweets. I won't eat the red ones for religious reasons. The height of my platform shoes. I never wear anything less than a ten-inch heel. I enjoy covering myself in melted chocolate, but only on bank holidays. Someone famous once helped to lick the chocolate off and almost choked. I used to go-go dance at weddings, but only really expensive ones. My mother disapproved and had me exorcised, but it didn't take. Now she just tells folk that I died in a tragic accident one night whilst playing bingo. My neighbours described me as a hellraiser, a corrupter of the innocent. Believe me, they're only jealous they can't keep up with me. Yesterday I was accused of being a money grabber. Apparently I only go for men with big wallets. The story goes that I once made a pass at a man I'd mistaken for a big movie star, and he turned me down. After that I cried for days and never got over it. Baby, nobody ever turns me down. They'd live to regret it. Well now, before anyone tells you any different, a good 99% of the above is all completely true. All except that last bit about the big movie star. It really was him, you know. But I'm not naming names. As I already said, he never turned me down, but boy, was he a disappointment. So that's that, my side, my version of events, loud and clear. There's the matter set straight once and for all. Done with, end of story, over and out. Now go find someone else to gossip about, why don't you? Daredevil. Daredevil, dare him anything, though nothing really hard. Swimming underwater, smeared from top to toe in lard. There's a list of things he'd never do, dare devil, dare him not. Perhaps I should remind you, just in case you had forgot. He doesn't dare to fight a pigeon in case it poops upon his head, and he dare not kill a spider in case it comes back from the dead. He wouldn't dare to ride the dodgems, because they spin around too quick, and they might upset his stomach, and then make him really sick. 
dare not play card games with a tiger because such a creature does not know the rules of games like cribbage and they just cheat and take another go. He'd never dare to fry a kipper because the smell it quite offends nor ever read a penny dreadful without first checking how it ends. Once a year he might decide to try out something extra brave like taking luncheon with his mother when he blatantly didn't shave. I doubt he'll ever be a devil dare he cross to the other side. Alas, a single clap of thunder would make the poor old blighter hide. Dare devil, dare him anything, though nothing vaguely scary, like killing a mosquito which would make him rather wary. There are lots of things he'd never do, dare devil, dare him not at all. If the earth's attacked by aliens, at least you'll know whom not to call. Dark Horse He's an undercover tech employed by the state, hooking in criminals who fall for the bait. He cracks every code he gets right to the source. Well, he might be telepathic because he's a very dark horse. He keeps his hooves to himself and his hay neatly packed. He's always alert just in case he's attacked. Sherlock Holmes in a saddle, he's a four-legged morse. He's a real mystery, yet a really dark horse. He's a sleuth, he's a spy, equine in disguise. But folk never notice when it's time to get wise. He's the bell of the ball all dragged up for the force. Though he looks like a dame, he's a really dark horse. James Bond learnt his tricks from this cult mastermind. Always six steps ahead of those lagging behind. He's an expert at camouflage, he blends in with the gorse. He lures the enemy in, oh such a very dark horse. Not a soul knows his name, his ID is concealed. When he's grazing in peace in his swish Surrey field, the jockey's salute from the Grand National Course takes his wages in sugar, does his sweet-toothed dark horse. He's the best in the business, yes, whatever they say. Will he ever be bettered? Alas, the answer is nay. Nay! This one's called Dating Season. All these things have a formula, a logic to them. It's just about knowing the rules, cracking the code. Dating season begins in the fall, he said. Late September, first week of October, but no sooner, he said. You'll never meet anyone any good during the summer. Anybody with a body and with a brain too. Real people, they're too busy, he said. Summer loving never lasts. Start out late in the year. Last out through Halloween, past bonfire night beyond Thanksgiving until Christmas. Then there's a good chance that you'll share each other's new year, he said. Cruise steadily through to Valentine's, exchange presents, maybe even rings. Snuggle up until spring and perhaps then, if you're really lucky, it'll last, he said. Last through Easter, through May and June, through July and August, cuddled up on summer nights, into autumn, back into winter again, savouring every moment officially declaring a success. But me, I wasn't so lucky, although I followed his advice. We made it last a year until she became celibate and dedicated her life to Christ. And me, 36 years old, having spent my adult life chasing women, now following a lot of detailed thought on the matter, I think, after all, I'm probably gay. But all these things have a formula, a logic to them. It's just about knowing the rules, cracking the code. This one's called, Did You Keep the Receipt? Did you keep the receipt to refund you the fee? Consumer complaint, payback guarantee. Returning one man who's only setting his nag. 
I've kept all the packaging, but I've not kept the bag that he came in. Now look, oh, his hair's all dropped out. He's not what I asked for. You can swap him, no doubt. Returning one heartbreak. That love didn't last. I lost my libido and went on a fast. I asked for a nice guy, please, not one who would spit on the street or at mother, ideally Brad Pitt. Returning one lifestyle that fails to inspire. Working for peanuts is just simply dire. Too much fatty food still is giving me terror. I asked for contentment but got this life in error. Returning one bright idea that turned out to be dim, poorly considered and quite frankly grim. For those who invented the chocolate teapot, was that a success? Let me tell you, it was not. Returning one planet, alas, no repair. It's bunged up and polluted and it's all too much to bear. Please send me a fresh world at peace and brand new, with nobody on it, especially not you. Did you keep the receipt to refund you the fee? Consumer complaint, payback, guarantee. This one's called Drunk. I'm a little bit drunk on the things that we've said. I'm a little bit drunk, all inhibitions have fled. But I don't think that's bad, no, I don't think that's wrong. We can still have a snog, then my breath smells quite strong. Yes, I'm a little bit dreamy, a tiny bit swayed by your masculine wiles, how I wish you had stayed. What a tease, quite the he-beast, a real wild one to tame. Now I've not got your number and I've forgotten your name. Hey, I'm a little bit merry, not quite right on my feet. Fell down on the floor, but my life is complete. Still, this is really no problem. It's not something to mourn. Though my hair is a mess and my new clothes are torn. Just a little bit sleepy, just a weeny bit down. I'm not sure where I am or in exactly which town. But I'm sure it was worth it. I'm sure it was just swell. Though my vision is blurred and it's all gone to hell. I'm a little bit thirsty, fancy one for the road, but I'm barred from the pub, all my oats have been sowed. With my credit card maxed and my coffers drunk dry, once I tried shadow boxing, but forgave myself a black eye. Oh, I'm a little bit woozy and I might just be sick. My head is still spinning, get out the way quick. With my head down the bowl, with my lunch flushed away, and with it all consciousness. Oh, such a marvellous day. This one's called... Excuse me, but are you the love of my life? Excuse me, but are you the love of my life? Are you my heavenly twin? I saw you gazing over and I, th- and I thought I might be in luck. If not, then it must be another. It's got to be one of you guys. It would be nice to be pleasantly pleased, but I'll go with a total surprise. Some say I will go with almost anyone, which in fact I refute it's not true. I'm just in search of my soulmate, that's all. You look nice. Could it maybe be you? Or you, or perhaps it's your sister. Is she single? Could I give her a ring? On the phone, or place there on her finger? For keeps, not just a meaningless fling. Or perhaps you know someone else willing to run off, to elope, start again. Someone who'll be simply devoted, who will laugh when it's pouring with rain. Who will buy me a greasy chip supper, and not count the calories, nor... Expect me to do all the housework or complain because I've started to snore. I'm searching the aisles for my loved one. I'm rolling the dice just to see. I might even find me a bargain. Find one. Get a second one free. Is it you? Is it you? Or another? Is it you in that pink like for shirt? I can forgive any terrible fashions. It looks bad, but at least it won't hurt. Roll up. My true love must be out there. Are you hiding? Can't hear me or what? I know that you've got to be somewhere, but can't pin down to exactly which spot.
Excuse me, but are you the love of my life? Are you my one special dream? I saw you gazing over. You looked scared and spilt your ice cream. If not you, then it must be another to pluck out from the sad single queue. I'm available. Hi, handsome. Come get me. Oh, goodness, no. I so don't fancy you. This one's called Exit Pursued by Yeti. It comes from the Shakespearean stage direction, Exit Pursued by Bear. Uh, I forget which play that's from, but anyway. This is Exit Pursued by Yeti. Exit Pursued by Yeti, Exit Pursued by Bear, and not a pleasant one, neither, but one with bad teeth and no hair. Exit Pursued by Mongoose, all moody with mad staring eyes, one you'd not trust with your granny, one who tells huge whopping lies. Exit Pursued by a Kitten, soft and furry but sharp as cut glass, being chased by a three-legged camel who does tricks for the tourists who pass. Exit Pursued by Prize Rhubarb, in a coating of lightly fried cheese, pursued by a troll in an igloo who resides in my neighbour's deep freeze. Exit pursued by a wombat, but a small one that bats for both sides, nearly squashed by a chain-smoking cyclops and a knife-welding pack of girl guides. You're pursued, never-endingly hounded, by odd beasts who might eat you for lunch. It is nice to be loved so and wanted, but not when fame comes with a crunch. Exit pursued by Yeti, exit pursued by Bear, exit pursued by Mongoose from its sinister underground lair, exit pursued by a Kitten, but one with no love for its mother, lock them all in a cupboard together, and with luck they might kill one another. Now this is another one that, uh, um, well, it, it's a play on words. It's a very obscure title. It's called Furry from the Deep, um, basically because... There's a Doctor Who story called Fury from the Deep. This is about an invasion uh, by some furry monsters. So Furry from the Deep. Okay? All right. I'll read it to you. Furry from the Deep. They had seen the first hint of invasion. They had watched from the hills to the sea. They had seen the spacecraft low descending as they gathered to watch at the quay. The tides frothed with brutal intentions and a light scanned the oceans below. The waters grew rougher and rougher and boiled with a fierce undertow. In the town, by the quay, all was silent, as the locals knew not what to do. On the beaches they waited, just watching. What would become of them, nobody knew. The sky burst with storms high above them, the light in the sea growing dim. Judgment Day, close, had now come a-calling, with a future that looked pretty grim. But just as soon as it started, concluded... Yes, the skies cleared a wondrous blue. All eyes, though, were still on the waters for a sight of that UFO crew. For a time, there was nothing, no movement. Oh, the sea lay as calm as a pond. But then, suddenly, bubbles emerging with strange shapes rising up from beyond. There were screams, there were cries, there was horror as they watched the shapes moving beneath. They were all visualising a terror Twelve foot tall and with sixteen inch teeth. They imagined an army of beasties with a way gruesome glare in their eyes, cold blooded and ready to eat them. What emerged then was quite a surprise. What emerged then was just not expected, not an alien hulk, tooth and claw. The reaction, not more cries or screaming, just a loud and affectionate, oh. 
they weren't ugly like Frankenstein's monster or some horrible blood-sucking thing. No, in truth, they were really quite lovely, pink and fluffy like rabbits in spring. As the creatures came slowly towards them, the vicar's wife gave a jovial hoot. Oh, how sweet! She was heard then to mutter, They've got dimples, how terribly cute! The reaction was echoed by others. These new beings looked cuddly like bears. The villagers began waving now gaily, both relieved and relaxed without cares. So caught up in excitement they reveled, the carefree locals not fearing their fate. Alien invasions can be rather jolly. They all saw the big guns just too late. This one's called A Gap in the Market. There's a gap in the market, a space unexplored, a chance to be taken that can't be ignored. Mountain climbing for aardvark, rhinos knitting odd socks, shy horses in tracksuits teaching budgies to box. Why not try old-fashioned listening trumpets for bats with hearing loss? Confidence-building courses for shy, unsightly moss. Eyeliner for ostrich, bungee jumping for fleas, cushioned helmets for hedgehog, who like a quick squeeze. Sets of facts and figures for sheep who can't decide. Rules on how to slither for snakes who fail to slide. Armbands for nervous otters. Braille booklets writ for moles. Clown shoes made for insects who keep slipping down their holes. Hats to save poor snowmen when it's hot in late July. Parachutes for hatchlings on their first tiptoed steps to fly. Major merriment for minor birds, tap dancing class for gnats, anger management for mice who get very cross and punch out cats, lonely heart clubs just for field mice who are looking for a mate, talk shows for tipsy tadpoles who really thrive on the debate. Oh, there's a gap in the market, a chance to expand, not a moment to waste for this plan to be planned. Posh pigs quoting sonnets, drunk monkeys on marks, Trunk warmers for Nelly, dental hygiene for sharks. There's a gap in the market, it's quite a bubble to burst. There's not a moment to lose, yup, you gotta get in there first. This one's called Got It All. He's got it all. The looks, the money, the job, the wife, the kids. Someone else's wife on the side. The secretary only too willing to oblige. Yes, he's got it all. The gambling habit, the alcohol problem, an expensive addiction to recreational drugs, the boyfriend whom he keeps as a guilty secret, who recently left him, heartbroken, to become a priest, the scars on his wrist where he tried to kill himself when he was 15, and again on the other wrist where he made an attempt at the age of 24, the day before his finals. The time he tried at 29 left no visible mark but it scarred him inside. Yeah, he's got it all. Every last bit of it. It's a bleak one. This is quite a bleak one too. It's called He Sang. Wednesday nights every week at nine o'clock, on the dot, business suited, umbrella laden, briefcase in hand. He came and he sang karaoke. It was always sad songs with him. Songs that often looked back and name-checked long-lost loves. Oh, Diane, Rhiannon, Michelle, even the upbeat ones like Angels, Daydream Believer, Borderline, he would sing with an emotional sob in his voice. 
the bar would always fall completely silent for him, the audience indulging him, allowing him to sing more than his fair share, for he was well known around the establishment for his spellbinding performances. We were sceptical when he first used to appear each week, but after a while we began to think differently. We saw that those were actually real tears streaming down his face, that it was no act, that there was no pretense. Nobody who watched him sing would ever have doubted that he was genuinely upset, for by the end of the night he would usually break down completely. He often became near hysterical with, with the emotion of the moment, had triggered in himself a sorrow that he could no longer control. It was all too much for him, and he would have to be led away from the stage, all attempts to purge his pain for a night having overcome him. Each week he would return to the bar in the hope that one day he would find relief, but on every occasion he seemed powerless to harness a total cure for his sorrow, failed to find joy inside the songs that he sung, to find a way to turn his life around. He sang, and when he did, we were moved by the sheer depths that he reached. We were awestruck by his ability to mine down into the core of the material. However, saying that, it was often quite a painful performance to witness. And yet he was such an enigma, such a draw to the regular crowd. That was until one week he never showed up. And on that night, we were all shell-shocked. It's the only word for it. And on that night, nobody else felt like singing. We were all just sat there and chatted about how it really wasn't the same without him. We all waited on that evening just in case he was running late, but he never arrived. It was the same the following week, and after that, he never returned. We tried to convince ourselves that all was well. We tried to think positively. Perhaps, we reasoned, he was all cried out. Every week on karaoke night, we would tell one another, he's okay. We all decided that singing his heart out had finally helped him. The alternative was just too mortifying to consider. We never said it, but secretly we feared that he had snapped, unable to cope. Could it be that karaoke no longer healed his pain, even for just an hour? Had there been no other solution but to say goodbye? Could it really be that he was gone, had dropped off this world and left us? No, it couldn't be, it couldn't. No, for our sakes, we would not allow ourselves to believe that. We reassured ourselves that he was well and that he had found a new romance or perhaps the love of his life, had finally come back to him. We comforted ourselves with the thought that all love stories must have a happy ending, that if he could find happiness, then one day, so would we. That is bleak, but I do like it. <laughs> I'm sorry, you're not supposed to say that about your own work, but, you know, when you come back to it after 20 years, it's like somebody else wrote it, really, <laughs> or it feels like it. Um, now, this is a poem that I wrote... I think it's one of a couple of poems that I wrote because of Wifey Joe. Somebody um, asked us once, how long have you two been together? It was somebody who had worked with us and they knew we were good friends and spent a lot of time together and they also thought we were dating. It was very, very flattering. And in another dimension, we probably are dating. So, How long have you two been together? How long have you two been a pair it's only pretend, I informed them. Just a laugh as a ruse for a dare. I wouldn't be seen dead as her boyfriend. I wouldn't if you paid me in cash. The thought of romancing that hussy brings me out in a cold, sweaty rash. But you look oh so perfect together. We had hoped you'd be settling down. 
she is welcome to settle, I told them, but I'll move to a separate town. I'd not see him, she cried. Why, he's ugly. What do you think I am? Do Lally gone mad? If you think I'd go dating with that tart, what poor taste you must think that I had. Well, you just seem so close, so together. You just seem like an obvious twin. He's a nightmare, unsightly of belly, and she is just stick-insect thin. His manners are those of the gutter. Her friends are more duller than she. He's a womanizer, such a cliché. She's a woman whose bed's always free. How long have you two been at battle? How long have you hated her guts? I despised her from our very first meeting. Since forever, he's driven me nuts. When it's her birthday, I forget it on purpose. Well, I deliberately misplace his name. I'll always try hard to outdo her. Oh, me too, yes, I'll do just the same. We realise now you were never together. We realise that we made a mistake. He is all the charm of cold porridge. She has all the allure of a snake. He lies like it's gone out of fashion. She fibs, just as natural as breathes. He always must have the last comment. She's less mature than a baby who teethes. See, I told you he must have the last word. I do not. You so do. Don't go on. Well, you do. You're no better. Oh, sorry. Oh, I've just noticed our audience has gone. Which is good. Let's make up. Get together. Keep us secret. So precious our life. I adore you. Abhor you. Oh, it's the same thing. For true love cannot last without strife. I've seen another typo. <laughs> I'm so cross. After 20 years. Now, this poem is um, another one um, inspired by Jo about a, a little story she told me years and years ago, before she was married, about how um, she... Uh, she, I think she had a boyfriend or somebody or somebody she was hoping would be a boyfriend and uh, he asked her if she had a, a tattoo and um, she said, maybe. And he said, can I see it? And she went, mm, maybe, if you, can, uh, if you can find it. And uh, so he went to have a look for her tattoo, made for a fun evening. This is called Hunt the Tattoo. Have you seen my tattoo? She slurred over drinks. You should see my tattoo and then see what you thinks. Not the kind of invite. Tis polite to turn down. And he grinned like a burke as she drove back from town. On the way home, he asked, Is the design clear to see? That's for you to find out, smiled the lady with glee. It's a devil, she added, and it's ever so small. Here's a torch and binoculars. So waste no time at all. On the sofa they flopped with two glasses of wine, and the tat hunt began as the torchlight did shine. Up her leg, across cleavage, slowly clothes she was shedding. Can you give me a clue in which direction I'm heading? Because it's jolly well hidden, then he heard himself cry. You're doing just great, came the lady's reply. Bra and panties was all he was left to explore, so he fumbled, embarrassed, and then he still wasn't sure. I'm sorry, he sighed. Satan, I just cannot find. She smiled. Don't give up. You've not tried my behind. But hey, he was cross. But where is it? So he wanted it proved. Blushing, said she, now I recall. 
I may have had it removed. He was gobsmacked. She tricked him. And yes, now he felt used. Whilst she beamed like a Cheshire. Oh, she weren't half amused. Moving closer, she purred. So are you tattooed, baby? So he passed to the torch with a laugh, just said, maybe. It's a bit saucy, that one. <laughs> well, uh, the original story was quite saucy. Um, this one's called, I am not a good enemy to make. I am not a good enemy to make. Yes, I'm bitter, oh so cutting, like a shard of broken glass. Can be twisted and plain spiteful. I'll make your life a total farce. I am evil whilst you're saintly. Does your halo sometimes choke? Being oh so nice must be annoying. To be so hot you almost smoke. And yet, I don't forget too easily. I know I do not forgive so well. I simply relish every daydream that sees you rotting down in hell. I throw darts right at your photo. I've made a tiny voodoo man. It's more human than you ever were. I guess I'll never be your fan. I shall never let you slip from mind. I don't intend to ever let you win. But every time I hear you're happy, I am sent raging in a spin. You were once smothered with affection. Now let me do it with a sheet or a pillow made of razor blades. Now that to me would be a treat. I simply find it quite impossible just to sit and leave things be. But am I torturing us both here or really only hurting me? I don't think I disliked anyone when I wrote these poems. Just my imagination, I, I promise. This one's called, If you loved me, you wouldn't. If I loved you, I wouldn't nag you. I wouldn't get in the way. I'd give you space. I wouldn't mind that you saw your friends every night. Wouldn't mind that you refused to tell them about us. I'd get a grip. Would travel miles to see you, but accept you can never come here that you can never afford to fix your car, not ever, because you'd prefer to use your cash for other ventures, for online gambling sites, or for going down the pub. If I loved you, I'd accept you have a past, accept there had been others, and understand that occasionally they might come calling, even at midnight. And yet, anything negative in my past, I should be able to forget. Why keep going on about it, you say? Just forget it and don't let it jeopardise our future. If I loved you, I wouldn't act like that. Wouldn't be so clingy, so suffocating. I'd accept your presence, the watch, the DVD, the strawberries, the cute teddy bear. I'd accept it and that I'd be good and that I'd shut up. If I loved you, I'd give you a break. If you loved me, you wouldn't switch off your phone all the time, ignore me when I need you. Laugh when I try to be serious. Keep me waiting until 2am with promises of a call. Act flippant when I talk of things that are important to me. Choose to stay in and watch soap operas rather than see me. Forget to show up when you promised that you'd be there without feeling even a tad guilty. Turning over to watch some action movie that you've seen a hundred times before. If you love me, you wouldn't expect me to leave my life on your terms. Allow me the sort of freedom that you allow for yourself just to give you the ammunition to turn around and say, are you seeing someone else? If you love me, you wouldn't be caught snogging strangers or telling them all our secrets. Wouldn't sell videos of our intimate moments to wide-eyed perverts on the net. You wouldn't do any of those things and more. And yet you do. So you can't really claim to love me that much, can you? 
some of that is true. Not the last bit. I don't think anyone sold intimate videos of me to, to internet perverts. Still, who knows? No, some of that is true, though. I did date somebody who was pretty closeted. They're not closeted now, but, uh, yeah. Yeah, there were there was sort of one rule for him because of his situation. Or at least it felt like that. But we did have some really good times as well. <laughs> Doesn't feel like it from that poem, but there we go. This one's called Just an Everyday Werewolf. He was just an everyday werewolf. It's not something for which he was proud. There are loads of regulations and swearing simply not allowed. He was just an everyday werewolf. Let's be blunt. It's not a pleasant life. He found it hard to get a mortgage. Then he accidentally ate his wife. Being beastly after darkness, it leaves him tired in the day. At work, he looks a tad unshaven, which is the price he has to pay. It is very inconvenient for such a guy to have a curse. And our friend was vegetarian, which really made it all the worse. He was just an everyday werewolf. Let's not pretend he was anything less. The postman would not deliver to his current home address. The milkman got the jitters. The baker dropped his loaves. The priest was low on silver bullets and was all out of garlic cloves. He really tried to be more friendly, but love thy neighbour he was not. Always tried to kill away from home, though, sadly, sometimes he forgot. He was just an everyday werewolf. It's the truth, so let's not be coy. Lycanthropy is so unsocial, which often tended to annoy. Sadly, any moon-shaped object, it would make the kids see red. A juicy orange or a grapefruit, a bald man's shiny polished head. When he tried to set the video, he'd come over rather strange. He was always missing Dallas, the theme tune causing him a change. He was just an everyday werewolf, so let's not gloss around the truth. But one night he came a cropper, despite his sharpened claw and tooth. When walking home from bingo, his hunger pangs came rushing back. Alas, a passing traffic warden seemed to him the perfect snack. But that dame gave him his ticket, with martial arts attacked the beast, cruelly dispensed him with her clipboard, until his werewolf days they ceased. He was just an everyday werewolf. He met his death along the way. It just seems folk don't like such creatures, no matter what the papers say. This one's called Killing Time. I'm killing time. I'm tracking it down. I've got the dogs on the hunt to pursue across town. I'm seeking revenge for injustices had, for it giving me wrinkles and for making me mad. I'm getting my own back, dig the knife deep within time turning me dumpy when once I was thin. There are no ties to bind me, disobeying all laws. Time waits for no man. No, it won't even pause. I've got time on my hit list. Wanted dead. DOA. There is no getting round this. Yes, time is going to pay. I'll not let it escape. I will not let time flee for killing my loved ones before then turning on me. I'm killing time. I'm searching it out. I'm wringing its neck whilst there is no one about. Oh, how I want compensation for my years all gone by. A yes, killing time with a smile to take an eye for an eye. This is called Love and Amnesia. They talk of love and they talk of amnesia. The hospital says amnesia is what it is, but the love of his family should make a great difference to his recovery. However, they did warn that there was a chance he will never recall what occurred. 
never remember anything leading up to the accident, the fall and how it actually happened, what led to him tumbling face first downstairs, only to hit his head with that sickening, inevitable crack as he slid to tiling floor, blood pumping from a deep wound across his temple. I related my official story to all the official people. I found him when I got home. That was the story I told the hospital and the police. But the truth is that he found me with his best friend in the marital bed, in fully-fledged unfaithfulness. Not that his friend stayed around long, left in a flurry of apologies. So much for standing by the one you love. He's not been heard of since. This is the reality of what happened that day. Nothing more, nothing less. It was over the day the ambulances came, the marriage, the affair, the lies, at least until... The hospital says he has amnesia. They say there is a chance he will never regain his memory of that day. Now he is home. They say that it is possible that he has blocked out the trauma, that his fall and the shock of it has banished all memory of the event. It is very likely that he'll ever remember. But sometimes, in his eyes, I see, perhaps, just maybe, he does. But we say nothing. I'm here now, with this sad and silent man, the faithful wife, the mother, the carer, held here a guilty hostage. Because he knows, I know he knows. Because neither of us have forgotten, and neither of us will say a word. This one, meanwhile elsewhere, um, well, my, meanwhile elsewhere was a catchphrase, well, not exactly a catchphrase, but a phrase that I used in Sutton Park a great deal. Uh, to go from one scene, you'd have the narrator go, meanwhile, elsewhere, yeah. Meanwhile, elsewhere, meanwhile, elsewhere, the villain's got a plan in mind. The hero takes a nap whilst lolling in a garden chair that the villain's prime a trap. The cad is busy burglaring, stealing jewellery from the store. Meanwhile, elsewhere on the balcony, our man begins to snore. The bad guys want to rule the world and are willing to use force. The good guy wants to save the earth, once he's sobered up, of course. The bad plan uses sleeping gas or a clone of some top royal, whilst our hero is rewarded, so it pays to say you're loyal. It'll take a call from HQ to revive the lad to life. The phone, it woke the baby, but he'll leave it to the wife. Which is typical, of course. He doesn't think she could be busy. But she's speeding to the aid of Harris tourists in a tizzy. Her hubby's not aware, you see, of her secret superpowers. He thinks she's watching telly from sunup to moonlight hours. Super couples, super villains. Meanwhile, elsewhere on the hunt, he is off to vanquish evil, though his mask's on back to front. The bad guy dresses splendidly, big ties and collars wide. The good guy needs a makeover, wears his pants on the outside. The hero takes a fall, but then he jumps back up again and has cunningly detected the supervillain's hidden den. His foes kidnapped an heiress, the law they sent him out to seek. The goody always gets the girl. He'll have a new one by next week. He doesn't tell the wife, of course. He'll just get all the perks he can. Meanwhile, elsewhere, his good lady wife just ran off with Superman. This one's called My Last Love until the next one. You're my very last love until the next one comes along. 
You're the only tune I'll hum until I learn another song. You are a tenor when I'm skint. I will be thankful till I'm paid. You are a sunset quite distracting, but you'll very quickly fade. You're the eighth world wonder till they come up with some more. You're the only one I think of until you've walked right out the door. I will be sweet and light like bubbles next to scum upon your bath. Some people seem to find you funny, but I'm sneering when I laugh. You're a snack to keep me going until I get a better meal. You're a scab that just keeps itching, but which I hope will shortly heal. Just like Christmas, you're a novelty, which very soon becomes a chore. Never mind how much you're giving, I will always ask for more. You're my peak of sheer perfection, yet you know that's not too high. It is true that I adore you, although I'm sometimes known to lie. You seem to think I was angelic, but your heart I'll surely break. I may have seemed to be the real McCoy, but alas, I was just another fake. You're my very last love, till my heart it skips a beat. Like a battered jigsaw puzzle, we are sadly incomplete. Our love, it keeps on growing like a bread too full of yeast. But should I keep you on forever? Well, until tomorrow night, at least. Revolution on the 8.15. There has been a revolution on the 8.15 today. The commuters risen up, yes, they are causing an affray. They have bound and gagged the driver, left the guard upon the line and heading into London, in at Waterloo, by nine. The timetable will be kept to, with a deft exact precision. The cost of tickets will be reasonable, not causing us derision. No more tea that tastes like gravy, no more cakes five quid a pack. No more toilets overflowing and leaves upon the track. Whilst we hand out cups of coffee, complimentary orange juice. A twenty-minute journey will take just that, and no excuse. Let us take a stand for liberty, let's cut down the waiting queue. No more leaving home at six, but never reaching work till two. The passengers rebelling from the east across to west, in the hope that in the future our trains may really be the best. From the south right up to northern shores, we don't forgive, we don't forget. Let me strike a blow for freedom with this mouldy cheese baguette. Let us get the service running, out on time from near or far, down in Guildford, up to Blackpool, from Dundee to Potter's Bar. Yes, the trains all shall be run now with the passengers as crew. And if the PM doesn't like it, that's just tough. Hell, let him sue. There has been a revolution on the 8.15 today. All at work on time, delightful, without even slight delay. The journey smooth, not bumpy, just the sun up in the sky. Do you think this all could happen? Do you think that pigs might fly? Nothing much has changed in the last 20 years. And let me say, it's not the driver's fault. It's not the ticket office man's fault. It's not the train guard's fault. It's not the passenger's fault. It's them at the top. Um, as usual, with these things. Uh, this is called the rock pool. I turn the rocks over gently, carefully, ruefully, afraid of what I might find. Something is moving down there, in the murkiness, half-seen, shrouded, cloudy, that argument we had last Christmas, saying things that we both regretted, purged but never actually resolved, best left, best forgotten, leave that one, flip the stone back again, then turn over another, carefully, ruefully, a movement, something scuttles away to hide, but what was it that I saw? Uncertainty, the time I found out, your lie, you being with someone else, he called once and hung up, we never spoke about it, you and I, best left, best forgotten, flip back that stone and turn another, carefully, ruefully, 
a light, a ray of sun, memories of happy times, of laughter, a summer picnic by the river, a barbecue with friends, just blissful. We were together, floating strong. Smiling now, I flipped back that stone. I remember where I left that one. Keep that safe for next time. Best left and hope that no one moves it. Pray that nobody takes it away and ruins that precious moment. Next time I'll leave the other stones and just flip that particular one. The rock pool ripples again without my assistance. Something is still moving down there, but for now I shall ignore it. Best left. Best forgotten. This one's called Running Down Corridors. I guess it's from the point of view of an actress who perhaps played uh, like the screaming heroine in an old 50s film or 60s TV series. You know, a 60s Doctor Who companion or something. Anyway, running down corridors. Running down corridors for a living. It's a tiring job, poorly paid. Once you've seen your umpteenth evil villain, the whole experience becomes rather staid. All day she spends running down corridors and twisting her ankle to boot. She screams by request at the monsters and ducks the attack if they shoot. She's the maid in distress when one's needed. She's the girl of his dreams on the screen. But if she needs him to do something manly, then he's nowhere around to be seen. All week she spends running down corridors and tripping down steps in a fuss. All the other big stars, they have chauffeurs, while she still relies on the bus. What's worse, it is hard acting frightened of creatures which swiftly pursue when you've seen them all there out of costume in the canteen lined up in the queue. All the year she spends running down corridors and screaming a bit for a laugh. She gets less than an hour for dinner, down the pub only time for a half. One day she'll keep running so quickly that perhaps she won't need to come back. Those beasts will have no one to follow. The corridors, her shrill cries, they will lack. She runs down echoing corridors daily, and she hates it. She just cannot lie. The day that she locates the exit is the day that she says her goodbye. This one's called She Takes Off Her Rings. She does it without thinking, instinctively, without thought, without contemplation. She takes off her rings, the jewellery he bought her, the necklace, the watch. She packs away the gown. She turns away his picture to face the wall, screws up his letters, deletes him from her Christmas list, sits back, staring at the clock. It is midnight now, and he still hasn't called. She considers phoning another friend, but relents. Her mind wanders. If he isn't here now, then he is bound to be with her instead. There at home, with his wife. She can't bear to think it, removing the gloss from her nails, stripping out of the new outfit that she bought for him to admire, paid for with his money, delightfully applied for his visit, had he actually shown up. She removes the ribbon, the clips, allows her hair to settle naturally as she kicks off her heels, slipping her feet into fluffy pink bunny slippers shaking herself into her oversized Pooh Bear t-shirt, preparing cocoa in a hot water bottle. The sound of the telephone interrupts her daydreams, instinctively, without any thought. She answers the call with one hand and reaches out for her favourite jewellery with the other. Somehow she knew that it would be him. She is smiling now, laughing, her face radiant and excited. Once again she is wearing her rings. It is a reminder to herself. It is a sign that says... He loves me, I am worthy, and he values me in his life. Calmly she turns his photograph back towards her, so that it faces her when she sleeps. She sits smiling, awaiting his arrival, the sound of his feet on the path. There is no need to dress for this occasion. Tonight she will not be lonely after all. Tonight all is well. I think if I wrote that today, 
I mean, obviously, men still mess women about. But I think if I was writing this today, I'd probably write it about a guy waiting for his male lover. Even 20 years ago, I was a little bit... Well, I wasn't necessarily out to everybody. Um, and I wasn't sure I wanted to be out in my writing. I used to write things quite ambiguously, uh, often. So you couldn't tell whether it was a male or a female character. But obviously, in that case, it was a female character. Um, but I think, as I say, if I wrote it today, maybe I'd write it slightly differently. But saying that, there is a piece a little bit later on in the collection that is almost as I was described. Uh, and this is a true story. It's about ten days of um, sort of romantic upheaval. And it has a neat ending uh, in the in real life. The ending happened pretty much uh, as I wrote. I discovered why I was treated as I was and realised that actually I hadn't done anything wrong. It's just that the guy who had maintained he was single wasn't single and neither was he in an open relationship but his uh, partner had been away overseas and uh, he decided to have a bit of fun but I didn't know that at the time that was never mentioned um, so yeah this is a very autobiographical piece it's called 10 days same as it ever was Friday the 5th you mailed me I liked your picture you said glad you like mine too I gave you my mobile number and we were texting all night in separate places, separate towns, yet in each other's pockets. By bedtime, we'd arranged to meet. Sunday the 6th, we texted throughout the day, flirting. Sunday the 7th, again we texted and then you phoned. We got on well, talked for hours. Monday the 8th, same Monday night. Tuesday the 9th, same Tuesday. Wednesday the 10th, same Wednesday night. Thursday 11th. Thursday, a three and a half hour record. Friday the 12th, Friday we spoke on the phone. Me crouched uncomfortably in a stranger's hallway, calling through the party noise, straining to hear over the commotion. Saturday the 13th, we sent texts all day. I went dancing with friends, but spent more time tapping out messages to you on the dance floor. Mid-song, a complete stranger remarked on my actions, laughing, but not unkindly. Sunday the 14th, we were to meet. I woke early and caught an earlier train, down to the sea to be with you. We met, and I found myself falling deeper. We nestled together in your bed. You have sensitive ears. I returned home, glowing. Monday the 15th, I text to ask if you are okay. There was no reply. Tuesday the 16th, I text again. I tried to phone, but you don't pick up. I try again. You okay? What's up? Wednesday the 17th, that night you send an email. You say that things are moving too quickly, but that you dearly value my friendship. I try to call you back in the day. But there is no reply. I leave a message. I say I'm sad, but happy you want to be friends. But you still never call back. Later in the week, I send you a sarcastic email. You send one back and say you've been busy, claiming that I have an attitude problem. I reply, defending myself. You ignore me. I send an apology a few days later. You ignore that too and anything else that I send. Your phone disconnected. I'm upset. Even consider going to your home. But in the end, there's no point. Eventually I meet somebody better, somebody special, but what you did still hurts me. Six months later, I'm in a bar in Soho. I see you in the distance with a crowd of friends. The guy I'm with recognises you too. He's a player, he says. Don't get involved with him. Too late, I say, but this news is a revelation. 
You expect me to react, but I don't. I ignore you. I've told people I feel nothing for you. I'm not going to let you prove me wrong. There are millions of us out there, the lovers and those they dumped. It's time to move on. Nothing changes. Same as it ever was. You probably think I was very naive. I probably was. I think this sort of happened in 2002. And I wrote about it in 2003, or in the winter of 2002. I think when I started to write it, I didn't have the ending, because that hadn't happened yet. I didn't know the full story, I suppose. This one's called We Have Mice. We have mice, she says. Or pigeons, or rats, or voles, or woodworm, or something. She shudders as she says that last word. Oh gosh, but I really hope that it's none of them, especially not the rats. It'll only be mice, I assure her. She nods her agreement. She can just about cope with that. Question is, I say, you need to define the problem. Really define it from a practical and fair point of view. Analyse the situation, I add as an afterthought. Analyse it how, she says. Well, I sigh, do you have mice, or... Or what, she interrupts, and then continues. Yes, we do have mice. Ah, but do you, or do they have you? I don't understand, she sulks. Don't speak such nonsense. Well, you've not been here that long, I point out fairly. So, do you have mice, or do they have you? Were they here first, is what I mean. Probably not. Oh, really, is that how it works? She laughs, unconvinced. Actually, I thought about it, she decides. And I I don't care. You don't care? I see that, I concede. And yet I worry. The place is mine now. That's all that matters. They're trespassing. Fair enough, I agree. I guess I'll give her that one. Mice. Mice, it's time to pack your bags. Your history. Or maybe, I muse, if the mice decide to get really mean, then maybe it'll be her who will soon be a thing of the past. This one is another sort of autobiographical one about dating somebody who was very closeted. Would you deny us? Together, in our hearts... Together all the hours allowed to us. Furtive moments when no one is looking. In the car at traffic lights, when nobody is paying attention. Hands clasped together tightly. Eyes meeting in the queue at the supermarket. A look, a smile, a secret language between us. It means the world to me sometimes. Just when I think you're too afraid to acknowledge us. For this is what worries me. If they found us, if they caught us suspected or suggested or insinuated would you deny us would you laugh it off thrice deny us to your manager to your mates to your muckers to your dog no your dog already knows somebody else then your mother would you deny us call us friends call us buddies nothing more anything but the truth anything but your partner your lover anything but your boyfriend well, listeners, that's all we've got time for this episode. It's been quite a um, a mixed bunch of themes. Some, some really silly, some quite personal and autobiographical. It was a, an interesting period, 20 years ago. And, uh, yeah, I'm still cross that I see typos. <laughs> I think, I must have noticed them. Why did I change them? Why did I not see them? And, unless one can only hope that this is an earlier edition that slipped through with a few typos in. Uh, I don't know. Well, right, yes, that's all we've got time for. At one point, I was hoping to combine the poems of the autumnal EP into this episode, but um, we've already outstayed our welcome, so we'll save the autumnal EP to another episode. There are still 
you know, quite a few more poems I could have read from Go Forth and Divide. Still available on Lulu if you're interested. But yeah, the Autumnal EP has, uh, even though it's a shorter collection, has quite a lot of my favourites in. But we'll probably get a guest in uh, to discuss um, some aspect of poetry writing or verse, uh, as it is a shorter collection. Okay, well, we'll be back again soon. Um, You take care. And uh, yeah, I've saved a couple of poems for the very end. So uh, enjoy and bye-bye for now. All right. Bye-bye. without me what would the world do without me are you the expert you wanted to be the trouble with you is your ego it is time we were talking about me what would the world do without me how on earth did the world cope before well how did it manage to get through the day without me to walk in through the door what on earth did the world do without me the grass must have grown weaker green how did anyone cope before i came along and emerged fully formed on the scene The world would just stop without me here. He is good, this one. Please, can he stay? Please write off so they know that you need me. Or I might just get taken away. How did anyone do anything before me? It's a wonder you ever survived. It's a wonder that things ever got done here. They really must have been pleased I arrived. I'm surprised, though, that nobody commented. Surprised simply that no one has said. Had you not come along now to save us, then we'd really be better off dead. The world wouldn't last without me here. Can you imagine how bad that would be? To keep things just right ticking over. No, it's unlikely you'd cope without me. The world must have seemed dull without me here. It amazes me no one complained. The earth drenched by mankind just crying. Twice as hard as whenever it rained. If I'd known then, perhaps been here sooner. I could have jumped on an earlier bus. Now I'm here, it will be just terrific. Making life good for me, great for us. The world knows it can't do without me. Let me tell you, hey, just wait and see. Because I'm going to be here now forever. So you might as well come worship me. How would the world cope without me? Hell, won't everything just stumble and fall? Won't life crash and burn without me here? The whole world will just crumble, is all. I'll try and apply for extension, for a pass which will let me stay on. Unless I'm reborn, you'll soon be in trouble, and you just wouldn't cope with me gone. How would the world do without me? How did the poor world cope before? Now I'm here, I'm going nowhere. The kind of boss you just cannot ignore. It's been good, but yeah, definitely time to come home now. Wow, really? No kidding. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. (laughs) Yes, goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. This show is part of the Pride 48 Network. Find more shows over at Pride48.com. Oh, dear. (laughs) What's going on now? Oh, it's the Sky Life Podcast.
Let's go. I have a voice. I have a voice. You have a voice. You have a voice. We have a voice. We have a voice. Unique voices in podcasting. Univospods.net. Just a quick little one here. It's called Not a Happy Bunny. Um, it was written, I think I said at the start, it was sort of written, and it could have gone in the next collection, but it was it was sort of so short, and there was still time to put it in this collection, so it went in this collection. Not a happy bunny. I am not a happy bunny, nor a rather merry pig. Not a jolly what's-his-name who likes to do a jig. Not a pleasant dormouse, nor a sympathetic prawn, and neither feuding squirrels with their daggers out and drawn. Not a cross-eyed pigeon quite ecstatic about the war, nor a hyperactive toddler who's a fan of blood and gore. Not a snappy, squat-nosed turtle, nor a diva buzzy fly. I can never keep a straight face when they look me in the eye. Not a cricket-playing rabbit, nor a hare that's got bad flu. I am not a happy bunny. Tell me honest now, are you? No, Toppy, I think that was a wonderful episode by Paul, don't you? Oh, my God. I sure do. Boy, I'm telling you, I really do. No, that was good. All right, dear. No, seriously, that was a great episode. Flabbergasted. Flabbergasted.